Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. You are listening to When Diplomacy Fails, a member of the Agora Podcast Network. The Agora Podcast Network is full of podcasts just like When Diplomacy Fails. They range from a history of alchemy to a history of England to American biography. There's loads there, and you should definitely search Agora Podcast Network to check out all the various members' podcasts that are there. There's also an Agora Podcast Network show that contains interviews and special looks at podcasters themselves so you get a better idea of who you're dealing with. Every month, the Agora Podcast Network promotes a specific podcaster by basically telling you all to go there. And as you've probably already gathered, this month in May we are promoting Royfield Brown. Basically everything that he's done so far. He has about five podcasts to his name, so he's pretty well established in podcast land. His works range from Ten American Presidents, to How Jamaica Conquered the World, to Mid-Atlantic, and a few others that I'm never able to remember all of because he has so freaking many. So, if you would like to find out more about Royfield Brown and the podcasts he's done, you should check him out by searching him in iTunes or the usual podcatchers. Thanks very much for putting up with these regular introductions for Agora Podcasting, and I hope you enjoy the show. This is a very important episode for the sake of understanding the kind of world that the characters of the 1916 story lived in. Last time we examined the outbreak of the First World War and how that impacted the nationalist-unionist divide. Here we'll examine that war in the atmosphere of increased militarism, extremism and aggression which characterised the period. Within we will finally get to grips with the character of Patrick Pearce as well as cover some important background details which enabled the Irish Republican Brotherhood to plan the Rising, even while the majority of that organisation was left unawares. If you feel you are ready for such a content-filled episode, and you are ready for information abundance, then we shall begin. Welcome to the miniseries. When Diplomacy Fails presents 1916 A special centenary miniseries exploring the context, characters and controversies of the most significant act in Ireland's modern history The 1916 Rising As 
I watched them fumble and stumble, my blood curled against them. They were so shabby, so absurd, so awkward, so unheroic looking. They were, as my father said, as the man would have said, disgracing our country, and this while real war was flashing and booming in Flanders and France. Sean O'Feelan, eyewitness to the drilling of the Irish Volunteers in Cork City, late 1915. Above all, we must dismantle the scaffolding of Catholic nationalism and attempt the formidable surgical task of separating those Siamese twins, faith and fatherland. The instinctive equation of Irish with Catholic is a contradiction of true republicanism. Separating Catholic from Irish does not mean rejecting the Catholic past of the Irish heritage, but instead liberating and enriching it. Irish historian and devout Catholic John A. Murphy, writing in Further Reflections on Irish Nationalism, 1978. Who will listen to the appeals of men who are not prepared to sacrifice their lives, if necessary, in defence of their country? Sean McDermott, writing in a letter to his brother, 1915. In an atmosphere of increased militarism, Patrick Pierce returned home after a tour of the United States in May 1914. It had been a tour to promote the teachings and mission of St. Enda's, Pierce's Irish-speaking school founded on the man's lifelong dream of reform for the Irish education system, but it had recently become an unpayable financial burden. Pierce had hoped that by engaging with passionate Irish Americans and expatriates, he would be able to raise the necessary funds to keep Enda's going, but his audiences didn't seem to want to hear about an Irish school or Pierce's literary experiences. They wanted Pierce to tell them about Ireland, and when the British yoke would be thrown off. Before long, Pierce stopped trying to change the subject, and instead became enamoured by the possibility of revolution in Ireland. Surrounded by determined but also detached Irish Americans, Pierce soaked in all the enthusiasm he could, before returning home, in his own words, a revolutionary. Pierce was quick to make use of the contacts he had made when he first joined the Irish Volunteers in late 1913. Men that had first pointed him in the direction of the Fenians in the United States now welcomed him back as a radical, and a radical that they could use. It had already been a journey of radicalism for Pierce, who in the space of a year was transformed from the shy, middle-class education reformer to the zealous Irish patriot and wannabe martyr. This time, instead of merely taking their advice, Pierce wanted to join the ranks of the Irish Republican Brotherhood. This he did, and though Thomas Clark wasn't quite sure what to think of him at this stage, in particular he didn't think he was quite so serious as a Republican because of his previous favouring of home rule, Pierce sought to prove himself by dialing way up his literary calls for revolution and his hailing of sacrifice as a noble end. The eruption of the First World War only gave Pierce an additional chance to prove himself to the Irish Republican Brotherhood as he sided quickly with the smaller anti-war Irish volunteers, apparently abandoning the cause of home rule for good as he did so. 
for Pierce was, by the autumn of 1914, completely enmeshed within the world of the Irish Republican Brotherhood. The circles of individuals that he now sat with held uncompromisingly extreme views, and one imagines Pierce becoming gradually corrupted even more by these influences, to the point that he barely resembled his old self by the year's end. Though his upbringing, his strange, morbid curiosity about sacrifice, and his romantic ideas about the perfect Catholic Ireland suggested that Pierce was destined to become a Republican from the beginning, it was only once he had returned from the United States and become so exposed to the extremist spectrum in Ireland that such a destiny was realised. Perhaps because of his patchy journey to republicanism, Pierce was not looked at as enthusiastically by Tom Clark as others. Pierce had a tendency to make his opinions felt even as he, an outsider looking in, was present at IRB Supreme Council meetings. When he was very sharply rebuked in one of these meetings for voicing his opinion that the IRB wasn't doing enough to bring about the revolution that Ireland needed, Pierce seemed doomed to remain a background figure in that movement. But events would soon place him in the spotlight. In the meantime, Pierce's writings for On Clive Sullish grew more militaristic as he called for greater sacrifice and extolled the virtues of war, claiming in December 1914 that We must accustom ourselves to the thought of arms, to the sight of arms, to the use of arms. We may make mistakes in the beginning and shoot the wrong people, but bloodshed is a cleansing and a sanctifying thing, and the nation which regards it as the final horror has lost its manhood. There are many things more horrible than bloodshed, and slavery is one of them. At the same time as Pierce advocated such drastic action, he enjoyed a promotion within the more moderate Irish volunteers, as he was appointed the director of military organisation. Now the highest-ranking volunteer to also be a member of the Irish Republican Brotherhood, Pierce had suddenly become indispensable to Tom Clark. But in the case of the latter, the penny had not yet quite dropped on this curiously passionate contradiction of a man. Patrick Pierce continued to teach at St. Enda's, with his pupils noting a dramatic increase in Pierce's Republican rhetoric and calls for violence. By this stage, Pierce was a busy man, high up in the volunteers, climbing in the IRB, running his own school and writing heavily for on Clive Sullish, as well as writing his own plays and poetry. This meant that Pierce was leaving a heavy trail behind him. In the months that followed, and as the war continued to lead thousands of Irishmen to their deaths, Pierce seems to have embraced the entire experience, looking on the war not as a trauma, but a cleansing triumph, as he wrote in December 1915. It is patriotism that stirs the people. Belgium cleansing her soil is heroic and so is Turkey. It is good for the world that such things should be done. The old heart of the earth needed to be warmed with the red wine of the battlefields. Such august homage was never before offered to God as this, the homage of millions of lives given gladly for love of country. Written only a few months after the failure of the Gallipoli campaign and the resulting toll it took on the Irishmen who were sent to die there, Pierce's declared belief in the cleansing power of death seems bizarre, especially for one who had, at many times in his life before, claimed to abhor violence. This leads us to an important theme of the 1916 Rising. The brutalisation and militarisation of society and the discourse within it, thanks to the emergence of radical nationalist movements on the continent and the prevalence of violence even before the actual war broke out. 
Dermot Ferreter notes this in his book, The Transformation of Ireland, but also makes an important disclaimer about the words expressed by self-professed radicals at this time. The brutalisation of discourse was becoming increasingly important in Ireland at this time, as was the lead Ulster had given in the call to arms of the Ulster Volunteers, but equally true was the fact that many of those who wrote in an extreme style were often practical moderates. Very few actually participated in the Rising, for example. The idea that the generation of 1914 that went off to fight with Britain had been brutalised is an important one. It helps to explain how violence could be so revered, and why young men viewed war as an experience, an adventure rather than a horror. Libraries have been written about the excitement and joy many men felt upon the descent of Europe into war in 1914. To so many it represented a chance to see the world and experience what it meant to be a man. The problem is, when historians note this fact, though it was certainly not applicable to every man that signed up, and financial considerations were definitely involved in other cases, but they often do not allow it to be applied to the young Irish men that went off to fight. It would be supremely naive, in my view, to present the kind of war fever of 1914 as one which Ireland avoided. Already since 1912, Ireland had seen men take up weapons instead of actively follow debate in a political forum. The Unionists had done this first, but the Unionists had not been the first people to take up arms when they perceived the political process was unable to help them. One need only observe the rise of militant groups in Serbia or Turkey, or the romanticising of violence within France, Germany and Russia, where the cult of the offensive, the love for father and motherland and the racial arguments for war therein captivated audiences long before Edward Carson took up the Unionist mantle. It would be overly simplistic to present Ireland as being yet another cog in the murder machine that European militarisation had inspired, but I believe it would be naive also if we expect Unionists, Nationalists and Fenians to not have received any inspiration from what was happening outside of Ireland's shores. This is echoed by Ferreter as he notes, Some of the young Irishmen who joined the British Army had undoubtedly been influenced by the wider concerns of the generation of 1914 believing that they had been born into a crisis-ridden world with a weakened older generation, war being viewed as a form of regeneration and catharsis. So far I've confronted you with two themes or ideas, the native brutalisation of Irish society and the impact that European militarisation had on the Irish outlook on life. But I want to present you with one more that will be raised even with Pierce's reading of the proclamation of the Irish Republic itself that of the older generations awaiting or expecting those of the present generation to act as they did. This is something I would label a false generational expectation, and at the risk of making this episode as dry as the Sahara, what I mean by that is, people like Pierce acted during this time because they felt compelled to honour the actions of their ancestors. Honouring the dead generations of Irish revolutionaries that acted in 1798, 1803, 1848 and 1867 meant acting yourself and invoking their names. It meant professing a desire to achieve what they had striven to achieve, Irish independence through arms. But it also meant that, if such a goal was impossible, noble sacrifice was the acceptable runner-up prize. Perhaps nothing captures this idea more perfectly than Pierce's oration in August 1915, 
when presiding over the funeral of another Irish Fenian, Jeremiah O'Donovan Rossa. Rossa had been a prominent Irish-American Fenian, who had helped train Republicans from Ireland alongside John Devoy since the 1860s. He was something of an icon in Irish Fenian lore, and when his body was returned to Ireland following his death in June 1915, Tom Clark spotted an opportunity to use Pierce's literary talents to his advantage. Clark needed someone that could capture the emotional significance of the time, and he needed to inspire the Fenians on both sides of the Atlantic to ready themselves to act soon, since Clark was at this stage well into the planning phases of the 1916 Rising. On the afternoon of the 1st of August 1915, Pierce spoke the oration that would make his name in Irish Republican Brotherhood circles and ensure his place in the coming Rising. Pierce said, It has been thought right, before we turn away from this place in which we have laid the mortal remains of O'Donovan Rossa, that one among us should, in the name of all, speak the praise of that valiant man and endeavour to formulate the thoughts and the hope that are in us all as we stand around his grave. And if there is anything that makes it fitting that I, rather than another, I, rather than one of the grey-haired men who were young with him and shared in his labour and his suffering, should speak here, it is perhaps that I may be taken as speaking on behalf of a new generation that has been rebaptized in the Fenian faith and that has accepted the responsibility of carrying out the Fenian program. I propose to you then that here by the grave of this unrepentant Fenian we renew our baptismal vows, that here by the grave of this unconquered and unconquerable man we ask of God, each one for himself, such unshakable purpose, such high and gallant courage, such unbreakable strength of soul as belonged to O'Donovan Rossa. Deliberately here we avow ourselves, as he avowed himself in the dock, Irishman of one allegiance only. We of the Irish Volunteers and you others who are associated with us in today's task and duty are bound together and must stand together henceforth in brotherly union for the achievement of the freedom of Ireland. And we know only one definition of freedom. It is Tone's definition. It is Mitchell's definition. It is Ross's definition. Let no man blaspheme the cause that the dead generations of Ireland served by giving it any other name or definition than their name and their definition. We stand at Ross's grave, not in sadness, but rather in exaltation of spirit that it has been given to us to come thus into so close a communion with that brave and splendid gale. Splendid and holy causes are served by men who are themselves splendid and holy. O'Donovan Rossa was splendid in the proud manhood of him, splendid in the heroic grace of him, splendid in the Gaelic strength and clarity and truth of him. All that splendour and pride and strength was compatible with a humility and a simplicity of devotion to Ireland, so all that was olden and beautiful and Gaelic in Ireland. The clear true eyes of this man, almost alone in his day, envisioned Ireland as we of today would surely have her, not free merely, but Gaelic as well. Not Gaelic merely, but free as well. In a closer spiritual communion with him now than ever before or perhaps ever again, in spiritual communion with those of his day, living and dead, who suffered with him in English prisons, in communion of spirit too with our own dear comrades who suffer in English prisons today, and speaking on their behalf as well as on our own, we pledge to Ireland our love, and we pledge to English rule in Ireland our hate.
This is our place of peace, sacred to the dead, where men should speak with all charity and with all restraint. But I hold it a Christian thing, as O'Donovan Rossa held it, to hate evil, to hate untruth, to hate oppression, and, hating them, to strive to overthrow them. Our foes are strong and wise and wary, but strong and wise and wary as they are, they cannot undo the miracles of God, who ripens in the hearts of young men the seed sown by the young men of a former generation. And the seeds sown by the young men of 65 and 67 are coming to their miraculous ripening today. Rulers and defenders of realms had need to be wary if they would guard against such processes. Life springs from death, and from the graves of patriot men and women spring living nations. The defenders of this realm have worked well in secret and in the open. They think they have pacified Ireland. They think they have purchased half of us and intimidated the other half. They think they have foreseen everything, that they have provided against everything. But the fools, the fools, the fools, they have left us our Fenian dead. And while Ireland holds these graves, Ireland unfree shall never be at peace. It was this action that... This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. That endeared Pierce to Clark and propelled him to the Supreme Council of the IRB. Once there, Pierce discovered to his immense fascination and pleasure that the Rising, the glorious military act against the British Empire that he now longed for, was in its final stages of planning. 
If we examine the leadership of the Irish Republican Brotherhood like a spider's web, with the executive in the centre of it, then the Supreme Council will be to the left or right in full view of its members. Somewhere tucked away within the web, though, would be the Military Council, a secretive group consisting of only the most radical members of the Irish Republican Brotherhood. Membership of the Executive, the Supreme Council and the Military Council overlapped sometimes, because they hate me and they want me to confuse you, but the most renowned Fenians, and those seen as most responsible for 1916, such as Tom Clark and Sean McDermott, were Executive, Supreme Council and Military Council members, and thus they could influence all three groupings and overrule others when necessary. The Military Council is something we'll encounter a lot in the coming episodes, so try to keep them in your minds for the moment as a conspiratorial group within the conspiratorial group, the so-called minority within a minority. Those within the Irish Volunteers did not largely profess a desire for the Rising. Instead, they wished to defend Home Rule and their own existence, which they saw as protecting Home Rule. They, above all, were united by their desire to stay home and not fight for Britain, but on the other hand, it would be wrong to present all the Irish Volunteers as dead set against launching some kind of armed revolt against Britain. The Volunteers had, after all, been heavily infiltrated by the Irish Republican Brotherhood by 1915, and though this did not mean that Fenian spies existed in every battalion, it did mean that it becomes harder for us as historians to speak about the Volunteers as a unified group at this time. Though they took their lead from the far more moderate Owen MacNeill, who as the Irish Volunteers' as chief of staff would have been horrified at the prospect of war against Britain, the overlapping elements and influences of the Gaelic League, Sinn Féin and the Ancient Order of Hibernians meant that tying down groups to one particular stance becomes far harder despite the divide in the Volunteers at the outbreak of the war. At the same time though, just to complicate things yet further, This did not mean that all who professed a desire to resort to violence necessarily would. Had this been the case, the 10,000 or so volunteers would have had a far greater presence in the 1916 Rising than they actually did. Into the world of Patrick Pearce and the Irish Republican Brotherhood, we must welcome back another figure that we touched on in episode 4, James Connolly. Historians can trace Connolly's development in a far more straightforward but still contradictory arc. This is largely thanks to the evident conversion to the Fenian cause that Connolly underwent in roughly autumn 1915, and the resulting influence Pierce's rhetoric had on him as an individual. The reason why this might strike us as contradictory is because Connolly was a committed socialist before this transformation occurred. He had played a leading role in the failed 1913 lockout, aimed at securing better rights for workers, and he argued repeatedly for a workers' revolution, since the end of the 1890s. What is especially interesting is Connolly's consistent condemnation of the First World War, behaviour in line with other socialists of the time, when you consider that he advocated then violence in the interest of Irish freedom. Connolly rebuked any reference to the Irish participation in the war as glorious, yet he simultaneously claimed without much apparent reservation that violence was an acceptable method for Ireland to achieve her freedom. In addition to this, Connolly contributed to the militarisation of Irish society by creating his own grouping, the Irish Citizen Army, or ICA, ostensibly to protect the worker from the kind of police brutality seen during the 1913 lockout, but realistically, some suspected, 
because he wished to launch his own socialist revolution. The reason why the characters of Pierce and Connolly are so interesting to me is because they remain the most renowned figures to have taken part in the Rising today. Pierce with his shy, consistently striking side profile, and Connolly with his distinctive moustache and piercing eyes. These two men would die by firing squad in the weeks after 1916, in early May of that year. But their journeys and the beliefs that led them to launch the Rising in the first place could not have been more different. Only months before the 1916 Rising, Connolly would rebuke an author of an article for claiming that the heart of the earth needed to be warmed with the red wine of the battlefield, and that we must be ready to pour out the same red wine and the same glorious sacrifice, for without shedding of blood there is no redemption. If this sounds familiar, it's because we quoted it a few minutes ago. These were the words of Pierce, but the article had been written anonymously. Perhaps if Connolly had known that the author had been Pierce, he might not have written the following in December 1915 of his weekly Workers' Republic. No, we do not think that the old heart of the earth needs to be warmed with the red blood of millions of lives. We think anyone who does is a blithering idiot. We are sick of such teaching, and the world is sick of such teaching. Incidentally, when Connolly did discover that the author had been Pierce and that Pierce had been the one glorifying the kind of mindless slaughter seen in Flanders, not to mention wishing its incarnation would arrive in Ireland, the scene must have been an awkward one. David Krauss in his article, Connolly and Pierce, The Triumph of Failure, captured the occasion, as well as the amusing contradiction it exposed in Connolly's developing character. Connolly did not know who had written that unsigned article, but after Pierce identified himself as the culprit, Connolly apparently forgave his Fenian friend and fellow rebel. Ironically, it did not occur to him that he had joined forces with a blithering idiot, a once enlightened teacher who would become a preacher of regenerative bloodshed. The day before Ross's funeral, Connolly had noted with much passion that When we honour Russell, we honour in him the fearless representative of a great movement, a movement that accomplished great things. We honour the latest of those who, in the days of darkness, pledged their faith to an Irish republic, and kept that faith unsullied to the last. We are prepared to fight for the same ideals, the republican principle of national freedom for which the Fenians stood. We are here because this is our place. Yet David Krauss noted that Connolly's praise of physical force republicanism on the one hand, and his upholding of the socialist mantra of non-violence on the other, didn't necessarily have to be the blatant contradiction it might seem to us. This was because Connolly despised the kind of glory and honour attached to sacrifice on the industrial scale, the likes of which had characterised the First World War up to that point, and which Patrick Pierce seemed to so romantically revere. To Connolly, this was a natural part of his ideology as a socialist, yet he had no qualms about asserting the justice behind the Fenians' cause of violent rebellion, largely because such a rebellion was perceived to be a far smaller affair with less casualties, and to Connolly the cause therein was far more genuine, noble and worthy. This to me is still a somewhat weak way to rationalise what seems to be two very different aspects of James Connolly's character. How could he be a socialist? but also insist on the justification for an armed rebellion. In a sense, I suppose it demonstrates the kinds of complexities in Connolly's character that would follow him to the firing squad. 
Historians still debate today how and why the former trade union and Labour Party founder went on to partake in such a violent and contradictory act. The socialist in James Connolly that was found in the late 19th century would surely have been aghast at what the Fenian socialist James Connolly would do in 1916, but this is precisely the point. It is a great example of what we talked about earlier, how the society and experiences of the early 20th century had the tendency to brutalise and radicalise individuals to the extent that they ended up making decisions way out of whack with their apparently original character traits. Whatever the similarities and contradictions of men like Pierce and Connolly, by the beginning of 1916, it was evident to Pierce at least that death would almost certainly be the end result of his campaign. Connolly's attitude to death is somewhat more complex, because he was a socialist turned Fenian turned Fenian socialist, but both men would die before a firing squad, and in the case of Pierce at least, it was not something he either lamented or dreaded. We have seen the transformation that took place in Pierce, how he went from passionate schoolteacher to determined Fenian. Pierce extolled the violence and atmosphere of the battlefield that dominated Europe from late summer 1914, yet historians do not focus on his wish to fight for Ireland as much as his desire to die for it. This theme is another one we have encountered in the past, and it is another one which defines the actions of 1916. Blood Sacrifice Blood Sacrifice ties into one of the key debates that surrounded the Rising. Was it a deliberately hopeless, suicidal military protest with the ultimate aim being martyrdom, or was it a military exercise with little chances of success, where success was still hoped for? As we'll see over the coming episodes, the 1916 Rising was different things to the different people that took part in it. Academic history always seeks to rigorously apply one theory at the expense of the other. We can't have the Rising both ways, in other words. It has to be either a blood sacrifice and a hopeless exercise in martyrdom, or it has to be a failed rebellion, which militarily stood a chance and which its participants wanted to succeed. Debates like these are important, of course, and this doesn't mean that historians don't pick and choose, but just so you all are aware, 1916 is often pigeonholed into the two camps, at the expense, in my opinion, of context and the inherent complications which went along with something as multi-layered as the 1916 Rising. Yet when we look a little deeper into the characters that made the Rising possible, two figures stick out. The first is Tom Clark, the second is Sean McDermott. Both are critical figures in the narrative of the Rising, and we will be giving them more time on our airways soon, but for the moment think of them as an important counterweight to the debate on the ultimate goals of the Rising, as a wrench in the works, so to speak. This is because McDermott and Clark were firmly of the belief that, succeed or not, a Rising had to take place, for two major reasons. First, because this was in keeping with the traditions of the Fenians that had risen before, and to miss out on an opportunity when Britain was at war would be shameful in the extreme. Tom Clark had already harboured a certain bitterness for failing to rise during the Boer War, and he wanted to ensure that he never saw such a ripe opportunity to cause problems for Britain go by again. Rising during Britain's war ensured that the IRB could rely on at least the nominal support of Britain's enemy in that conflict, a tradition Clark again wished to replicate. They would later be able to use this appeal to tradition to claim that the ending of the war, which 
was rumoured imminent at various points before 1916, would have brought much shame to Ireland if the Irish Republican Brotherhood never planned to rise. Clark's position along McDermott on the three-man executive council was critical. They were able to effectively rule the IRB and direct its policy, despite the objections of a number of its members, such as Bulmer Hobson, another figure we'll encounter in the near future. If the senior members of the IRB didn't elect to rise or failed to do so in the allotted time, then their movement would lose the credibility it had as an organisation committed to exploiting Britain's difficulty for Ireland's independence. If they were not at least seen to try, how could they be then taken seriously as Ireland's brotherhood of dedicated revolutionary republicans? Eamon Kant, one of seven signatories of the proclamation and one of the 15 to die by firing squad after the rising took place, put it most succinctly when he stated that We volunteers, an armed body, could not let this opportunity to pass without striking a blow while England is at war. We would be a disgrace to our generation. The notion of honouring the dead generations that had acted before and keeping the traditions of revolutionary, defiant republicanism going lead us to our second point, a willingness to die for the cause. This willingness came not so much from a romantic obsession with death and sacrifice a la Patrick Pierce, but from a calculated, almost detached examination of the impact of previous rebellions in Ireland, as well as an appreciation of the inevitable. The rebellion would inspire people, it would awaken them from their docile relationship with Britain and demonstrate in striking terms that men were still willing to die for Ireland in the 20th century. It would show Ireland, and London for that matter, that the Fenians were still present, that they had not been stamped out with prison sentences, hard labour or bad press. The order of the day was saving the soul of the nation through demonstration. As historian Fergal McGarry noted, Such martyrdom was not willingly sought on the egotistical belief that a Christ-like sacrifice was necessary to spiritually redeem the nation, but reluctantly accepted as an unavoidable means to a more modest end, the preservation of the separatist tradition. Militarism in the manifestation of a doomed rising was a form of protest, because the rebels would be protesting against the current state of Ireland under the British yoke, and would be acting to make Ireland better. By acting, they hoped that they would inspire others to carry the revolutionary baton into the next generation, as they imagined they had done in the years before following the departure of older Fenians. McGarry summarised the aim again when he said, If a single aim united the organisers, it was not blood sacrifice, but the conviction that their action was preferable to inaction, that the potential advantages of defeat the reassertion of separatist credibility, the long-term survival of the physical force tradition, the possibility of inspiring popular support and destroying home rule, outweighed the advantages of inaction. The rising represented for many the last throw of the dice, in a phrase used at the time, the last fight, before the extinction of Irish nationality. To conclude, IRB members that wanted to rise ASAP reasoned that rising was necessary to keep up with traditions, to inspire the populace, to maintain their reputations as fighting men in a revolutionary organisation. Sacrifice within a rising was the most significant and striking thing they could do, 
and thus to those that would launch it in military success, was not as important as what would come after. What would come after is perhaps the best phrase to help us understand the Fenians of 1916. They were obsessed with the Ireland of the future, how it would free itself, when the people would act, and how those people would view them. The cult of violence and sacrifice required a bit more refining for some IRB members to embrace it, as the likes of Sean McDermott and Tom Clark had. Enter Patrick Pierce. Pierce had shown a great number of indicators, as we saw during his bio in episode 5, that he would be willing to die, and he critically understood as well the symbolic importance of martyrs for the national aura. To Pierce, once his conversion to the IRB was complete, it seemed as though everything had prepared him for the final act of martyrdom. Though morbid stories he told his friends about sacrifice when he was a child, his complete sponge-like absorption of everything Irish in the years before, his passion for change in Irish society that extended way past education, his belief that only a dramatic display could bring about such change. These characteristics make the adoption of more extremist Fenian tendencies easier for Pierce, and they actually meant that once he sat upon the seven-man Supreme Council of the IRB, he possessed a more developed understanding and appreciation of sacrifice, as well as being a good deal more radical than his colleagues in the Irish Volunteers or even the Irish Republican Brotherhood. The sheer volume of work he left behind remains treasured possessions for many today, but they also point to a fact of the 1916 Rising, that Pierce expected not to live to see its outcome, so he wanted to leave behind a body of work that would speak for him and stand in his place. The result of this literary legacy is that we have lots of plays, poems, frequently attributed statements and diary entries made by Patrick Pierce but it is difficult to actually get to grips with Pierce, the man, since all of what he left us seemed to have been geared towards creating the kind of legend that Pierce wanted so desperately to be. Almost because of the fact that we don't have in our possession any records of the IRB's day-to-day plans leading up to the Rising, we are faced with looking at the works of Pierce in order to wrap our heads around it. This has undoubtedly led to what I like to call a Pierceification of the 1916 Rising in which any debate about the Rising or its events is impossible to make without some allusion to Patrick Pierce, and in the process we run the risk of paying too much attention to his profile at the expense of others. We are already fully guilty of the sin of Pierceifying the 1916 Rising, but I do this because it is often more helpful to analyse what we do have and instead of speculate on what we do not. Pierceifying the Rising is also useful in a sense, because it enables us to tackle the other issue that many of the IRB's Supreme Council espoused, but which Pierce defined and alluded to so blatantly and readily, blood sacrifice. In the next episode we will continue our examination of Pierce the Man, by looking into this belief in more detail, putting it into context and exploring what historians think of it as a motivating factor for bringing the 1916 Rising into motion.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.